welcome back to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. Thanks to all you listeners for joining us for another episode. We really appreciate you guys tuning in. Jenna, we've got a lot of visitors today. I'm really excited for this episode. We have two guests and a, like a third co-host with us. <laughs> Lily Maynard is here to help us um, talk about this really exciting initiative that we're hoping to involve the Cincinnati Zoo with. Well, I couldn't help myself. I needed to come and join in and make sure that Jenna and Mark got to meet our visitors, Varun and Divya from India. We have Dr. Varun Goswami and Dr. Divya Vasudev from the Conservation Initiatives Organization. They are the co-founders and senior scientists there, and we're growing our partnership with them and just so thrilled to have them visiting us here in Cincinnati to get to know their, uh, their work and for them to get to know us. So welcome, Varun and Divya. Thank yes. you. Thank We're you. so excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's great to be here. Thank yeah, you. So we really appreciate you guys coming to talk to us and all of the work that you do. Um, and it's so hard. I'm always like, just tell us about yourselves, but which is a very broad question. <laughs> but if you guys don't mind, just telling us a little bit about like how you became passionate about this or mm -hmm. how you decided what to study for your PhDs or just a little bit about yourselves in general. Yeah. Uh, so I, I actually grew up in a city. Um, I was, but even having grown up, grown up in a city, I was always interested in the outdoors. And I especially like to watch primates. So we have a species of monkey over there called the bonnet macaque. And they are so mischievous. They're constantly running all <laughs> over the place. They're constantly stealing people's food. And they're just always doing something. And it's extremely fascinating to watch them. But I hadn't translated that into a career in conservation science till I did my master's in wildlife biology and conservation from an institute in Bangalore, India. Uh, this was a very unique program which was completely taught by people who are very much involved in conservation in the field. And that really changed me. It influenced me a lot. Uh, there were very, very inspiring people whom I met and I heard about a lot of the conservation challenges that wildlife is facing across the world and especially in India and I was hooked. I knew that this is what I was going to do. I think that's amazing. I always wonder like for people that are actually out in the field doing these things like I know those jobs exist but I've never known how to get into them. I never like it never came across my career path or my education so I think that's really neat and so important that there are people like you two that are doing this. And what about you? Yeah, I, I guess, so I grew up in a smaller town than a city and so there was always a lot of, you know, nature and the outdoors around and we, as growing up, we would always be out and enjoying all of that space. Uh, but also, my grandfather, he was um, in the tea gardens in, a, in the state of Assam, in the neighboring state and so we'd go visit him uh, in our winter vacations and there's always, you know, some forest area near where he would be and he'd take us you know to the forests and he'd take us for picnics and and then during those times he'd be he used to be really passionate about elephants himself and he was an honorary wildlife warden so then he would talk about all of that which oh. then kind of sowed the seeds for you know me being interested in in wildlife i didn't at that time think that i'd end up taking it up as a career but it slowly started to evolve in that direction mm. and i eventually found myself in the same master's program as Divya did, uh, which is in, in Bangalore. And actually, to be f honest, there are very few opportunities to study. Wildlife biology and conservation is, is a, is a non-traditional field in mm. India. Okay. I mean, it's now changing, but it wasn't when we were trying to study it. And so this particular master's program was like, we were in the first batch, so the first cohort of students. 
uh, which started in 2004 and so we both were part of that first cohort and uh, it provided yeah. it provided an opportunity to to study a subject that i had by that time had become quite i mean i'd fallen in love with and i was really passionate about in fact i remember a friend of mine asking once i joined this institute it's called the national center for biological sciences uh, and when i was pursuing this my masters degree uh, a friend asked so have you found your hogwarts <laughs> <laughs> and i was like yes i have perfect <laughs> Amazing. So, what house are you in? <laughs> Gryffindor. Oh, okay. Perfect. So, your grandfather introduced you to the tea estates and the and the elephants. Did you think you would always study ele- want to help save elephants? Oh, uh, yeah. I always loved elephants. Mm-hmm. I saw them growing up, and I remember I have a very like this distinct memory of sitting in my grandfather's you know like balcony outside his like. you know house in in the tea estate mm-hmm. and we would see uh, elephants coming down the hill uh, and it so happens that that particular tea estate is in the landscape that i currently work in in this the kaziranga karbiang long landscape and that particular tea estate is one of the tea estates that we actually engage with wow. and so i i go there and i i i fondly see the same hill and the same scenery and the same view and as i go like, oh, yeah i remember this when i was a child and i remember seeing elephants then and i always loved animals uh, i loved elephants as an animal mm. uh but when i first started out during my masters or just before that i was actually i think i'd read a few of these uh books by like jim corbett and uh, kenneth anderson who had written about their their adventures with uh, with man eating tigers mm. and man eating leopards and and they just would paint such a vivid story of how they would track this tiger that they finally took out so that it it really got me excited about like trying to study tigers so i was initially interested in working on tigers but oh. then uh, soon i realized that i think i like social animals that i can you know observe and interact with more <laughs> <laughs> it would be so hard because sometimes yeah. you aren't seeing these animals yeah. like exactly yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> so you like to be able to see them and elephants are a lot bigger yeah. <laughs> and elephants are are so i mean they're so intelligent they're so social and there's just so much going on that it's 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 a pleasure to just wow. watch them and yeah wow. spend time with them and for those of us listening that are haven't been to the Karbiangwang Kaziranga landscape what is the role of the tea estates and what are there elephants on tea estates or tea farms how does it work Uh so let me introduce um everyone to the the landscape that we're Please. talking about. Uh this is the Kaziranga Karbiangwang landscape in in Assam which is located in northeast India. It's uh on the southern banks of what is called the Brahmaputra River. This is a huge huge river um the mighty Brahmaputra it's mm. called. Uh and the Kaziranga National Park is a very unique park. It's a floodplain ecosystem located at the banks of the park which means that Every once in a while every year pretty much uh, when it rains during the rainy monsoon season the brahmaputra floods over and inundates a chunk of the park so up to 90 95% of the park can actually be underwater uh, while this happens and when the water recedes it leaves behind extremely rich rich silt so uh, the park and the grass that grows after that just makes for an amazing a uh, feast for a bunch of herbivores that live over there so you have a huge assemblage of herbivores and you have very high densities of them as well uh these herbivores obviously also support a very high density of carnivores the main carnivore being over there being tigers mm. uh south of 
Kaziranga is and because of this this flooding of the park annually animals need to move out of the park as well they have to move down south away from the floods and they do so uh, towards the highlands of Karbianglong hence it's the entire Kaziranga Karbianglong landscape uh, to reach the hills of Karbianglong they need to navigate this very very complex space where there are plantations so there are tea plantations there are tea estates there is uh, there there's also a bustling highway there is there are human habitations and so on uh, so they have to cross yeah. the highway they have to cross the highway yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do people break for elephants uh, during the flood season <laughs> people yes break for elephants wow. but during the yeah during the monsoon season when there's maximum movement uh, the department over there is also involved a lot in just slowing down the traffic. Mm. So there are dividers, there are patrols that go up and down, there's a fine if you speed. Uh, there are currently, there are speed guns. So you have to slow down to, to like, a, you have to like slow down a lot if mm. you're going along that highway. Wow. I know you both are working on a lot of different ways to mitigate like human-wildlife conflict, but for this specific topic, are, have they considered the over or under bridges that... I've seen happening around the United States some. Yes, actually, that is very much on the cards. Okay. Uh, so there's been a, a long, uh, you know, discussion and debate on what's the best solution for, I mean, so this national highway is also a lifeline for all of the eastern regions of, of, that, of Northeast India. And it's been, uh, you know, traditionally been, so since we have the Brahmaputra River, this this uh, highway basically is kind of goes alongside the river, okay. so it connects, you know, very important uh, cities and towns and all of that to the further east. And so, in many ways, it's a very important uh, highway. And so, how do you try and make sure that you know all the requirements of the highway being what it is mm -hmm. are met, at, but at the same time, you are able to enable the movement of animals to cross over to the Karbi Anglong Hills mm -hmm. uh, from Kaziranga. Uh, so initially there was some conversation about potentially thinking of alternative routes and seeing if there's some other way that you can connect to the same highway further up uh, and then, you know, do that. But eventually what has, what uh, the government has settled on is to have uh, these uh, overpasses and they're going to be, so they've been sanctioned and they're going to start very soon. Yeah, and uh, there's going to be one overpass, which is about going to be about 19 kilometers, I think. That's the plan. Yeah, that's the plan. So wow, one yeah. giant wow. one. Yeah, yeah. So the the car's gonna go over, and and there's gonna be space below uh, for animals to. So that's continue a big, to great, migrate. nineteen kilometers long bridge with yes. space for for wildlife underneath. Yes. Wow. And there are gonna be multiple such overpasses. This is the longest one, but the others will be shorter. But it's basically in you know coinciding with where designated wildlife corridors mm. already exist for animals to move between Kaziranga and Karbianglong. So important. That's awesome. Yeah, you guys obviously work in such a, an important ecosystem, and clearly human-wildlife conflict is an issue over there. Was that part of the, the stimulus to get you guys to co-found your organization, conservation initiatives? Will you talk a little bit about where you got the idea and why you started it? Uh, so we've wanted to... Uh, there are two major biodiversity areas in India. One is in the southwest, uh, the Western Ghats, and the other is in northeast India. Uh, Northeast India was, Varun's from Northeast India, so I guess he should talk about it more, but Northeast India has, was relatively, has relatively less opportunities for people to do work over there. There was relatively, there were more places that were unexplored, mm -hmm. and there was a lot less knowledge about that location, and a, not, a lot less, 
um, like a lot less conservation efforts invested in there. Uh, so we wanted to have an organization that would promote uh, good science, good conservation science, and also science-based conservation in the area and create opportunities for people who are from the area to actually get into the field uh, and to develop skills that, that you know, and opportunities which would be there in other parts of India, but not so much in the Northeast. That was the main, I guess, motivation behind uh, starting our organization. Uh, essentially, we wanted to have a place where people push for novel, interesting, useful ideas are very much based on the ground uh, and it would kind of borrow from global scientific uh, development as well as be informed by what is the local context. Mm. Do you want to add? Yeah, and I guess uh, one of the things that we very strongly believe in in conservation initiatives is is the conservation that we kind of implement on ground. We believe that it should be participatory and it should be you know inclusive and bring uh, the different communities who are you know like important stakeholders in this whole in the whole mm. you know conservation effort that you're trying to put in place uh, for them to so to work closely with 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 such people and so then and it becomes really important in uh, particularly some of the states uh, in northeast india where we work because uh, basically you know more than 90% of the forests in in these states uh, in states like nagaland and meghalaya these are two states uh, hill states in northeast india where more than 90% of the forests are owned and managed by local communities. So it's, oh, wow. it's on community land and it's a very different model of conservation uh, compared to most of the other parts of India, uh, wherein we have most of our protected lands or most of our natural areas that are protected are on uh, government lands and that are, that are managed by the government. So here is a very different kind of land management system and it necessarily, you know, requires a model where you work very closely with local communities to to achieve conservation and and it of course means that you have to find that balance between achieving mm -hmm. conservation and also meeting the day-to-day -day livelihood needs of people and that's mm -hmm. something that uh, we were motivated to contribute towards as well and so being a an organization that's you know like started started in northeast india based in northeast india and uh, with a set of people who have uh, uh, a reasonable understanding of the, you know, the, the local nuances and sensibilities and sensitivities, uh, I think it would just make it that much easier to try and implement some uh, a slightly different kind of conservation model. So that was part of the motivation as well. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons we at Cincinnati Zoo are so excited to be getting to know you and working with you. We're committed in, to working and supporting the communities that coexist with animals because we live on a planet that's full of people and mm -hmm. wildlife and we want to help both groups thrive and so we want to learn from you and work with you and we're gearing up to build build the new habitat elephant trek opens next year in 2024 and we will have both asian elephants a growing herd and a huge habitat that's five times bigger than our current one for our herd and also gibbons, which is another species that oh, you all wow, work on. Oh, wow, that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you are both interested in elephants and gibbons, and I would love to hear more about the gibbon side of everything, but I wanted to point out, I think it's important for people to realize, not only are elephants magical and, like, you can see them and they're social and they're intelligent and they have so many things, 
But when you're protecting an animal as large as elephants that need all of this space, there are so many more animals other than elephants mm, that are being absolutely. affected. But yeah. when you're like protecting the elephants, you're also helping protect these other animals. So is that part of the reason that you're also focusing on elephants? Absolutely. I think that's the, the main reason why we focus on elephants because we, I mean, I think you said it exactly. So once you think about elephants as, as a species that you want to concentrate your efforts on, when you try and achieve uh, conservation for this species, you're achieving conservation at very relative, I mean, at very large scales, actually. And you're then, you know, having a lot of benefits that trickle down to other, cons other species as well. So I think that's one of the reasons. And the other is that I think because in a, in a country like India where we have, so the species requires a lot of space, uh, but the space that it, it uses is a heterogeneous space. So you have some protected areas, but then you have all of these other shared spaces that have agricultural lands and other kinds of land uses and elephants use those spaces, move through those spaces, they interact very closely with people when they do so. So uh, we are also interested in, in working on elephants because they have this, this close, you know, various kinds of interactions with people and we want to be able to uh, achieve, you know, conservation at those scales while uh, making sure that the, the kinds of relationships that uh, people and elephants share uh, is one which is, you know, kind of in sync with what has traditionally been the case, where there's been a lot of uh, reverence and a lot of cultural tolerance for uh, elephants and other such species in India. And we want to be able to kind of continue to support that kind of, you know, thinking and motivation uh, while ensuring that we also meet the requirements of, of a species that requires a lot of space and resources. Yeah, I also sometimes feel that elephants exemplify our relationship with nature where we love them and we have a lot of empathy for them and we are very fascinated by them. We, we feel joy when we see them. But also there, are, there is a lot of conflict in terms of sharing space uh, over shared resources um, and we need to figure out how elephants and and humans or people and nature can both thrive. I feel like that's just a worldwide yeah. issue that we all need to try yeah. and figure out or everyone around the world is trying to figure out because of course you can say that you love tigers, you can say you love elephants, you can say you love lions, but if they're taking away your livelihood or potentially yeah. coming into a situation where they could put your family at risk, mm -hmm. no matter how much you love animals, you're probably going to protect your family. And so it's like a balance that you have to figure exactly, out. Exactly. And there are more people every day and less animals every day and less wildlife space. So it's definitely like a really tricky topic. But yeah, as the Cincinnati Zoo, we've definitely been trying to share that story and, mm -hmm. and help with different... And focus mm -hmm. on what gives us hope when right. we find solutions and we find ways to hold up opportunities that would help reduce that conflict where the needs, bo both needs can be met. So I'd love to ask you, Varun and Divya, what, what gives you hope? What's something that, a solution that you found that has helped to reduce conflict between people and wildlife? Um, well, one of the things, and I, I can talk about what gives us hope, and then Warren can talk about a solution. Uh, one of the things that really gives gives us hope is uh, that wherever we have gone and worked in, in India, um, specifically we work a lot in Northeast India, so wherever we've gone, we've spoken about conservation of elephants, we've spoken about conservation of other species of forests, uh, there's never been any need or to explain 
why we need to conserve these species. People people know, people realize, and people want to conserve these animals. Even if uh, there are farmers who have faced crop loss from elephants, they still have a desire to conserve elephants. They still believe that elephants have a right to persist on this earth. Uh, and as long as they, as long as uh, there are solutions that kind of mitigate their losses uh, and or their safety concerns, they are extremely happy to not just allow elephants and other wildlife to be on their land, but also in some ways to, there are some people who are very, mu very much involved and interested in participating in conservation and spearheading and, and pushing for conservation. Uh, that is just phenomenal. It's phenomenally motivating to go, for instance, to a, a, a village somewhere and they have set aside part of their land just for the forest and just for the species. Mm -hmm to survive over there and it's it's immensely inspiring yeah i think uh, i can give a share a, s a short anecdote which speaks to what divya said also uh, in that in some of these surveys that i was doing a while ago during my phd um, and i was in the state of meghalaya um, and i was talking to a farmer who had who would be tell who was telling me about how you know during the months of uh, July, August, when the jackfruits all ripe, uh, you know, elephants come and then they, they eat their jackfruit. And then so I was just talking to him and uh, he said, but you know, I mean, I was, I, I obviously thought, okay, so I mean, he's losing his jackfruit to elephants. So I wonder what he thinks about it. Uh, and he was like, but I have enough jackfruit, Aww. you know. Mm -hmm. So if the elephants, I mean, I have so many jackfruit trees and if the elephants have eaten some of it, uh, it it's been, I mean, something that does, didn't seem to bother him. So mm -hmm. I think uh, somewhere it is definitely inspiring to see that people who face various kinds of losses are still able to like come to terms with them in, a, in such a gracious manner. Mm -hmm. And uh, it also kind of made me think that as a, as a researcher or a conservationist working in these kind of spaces and working with, with people who, who face these, you know, situations on a day-to-day -day basis that... Somewhere it's also important to no, not suggest an idea of conflict where there isn't one. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important because we may not think like that and we may just say, oh, you know, but you've lost all of this. Isn't this a problem for you? Mm. Now, you know, that's kind of, I mean, you definitely need uh, solutions and I will talk about solutions and you need solutions because people are genuinely, I mean, people are facing losses and they are facing hardships and those have to be mitigated. Mm. Definitely. But then... If their whole worldview is one that, okay, we are facing all of this, but then, you know, it's not come to a stage where I, I don't want this species in my backyard anymore ever again, mm. uh, then one shouldn't go around trying to suggest that that might be mm. how they mm. look at it, you know. Yeah, so, you don't want to put that idea in their mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, think, so I think that's something that we've been mindful of in the way we interact with people as well. I mean, it's important to hear what they have to say rather than like put ideas into their heads. Uh, as far as solutions are concerned, I think, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> as far as solutions are concerned, I think uh, what's been really good to see from our work is that, uh, so we've been working with a lot of tea estates uh, in the area, in, in the Kaziranga landscape that we just talked about. And uh, what we found is that this is a space that elephants and other wildlife are using a lot 
for their movement and you know their basically their requirements as they as they cover ground in the landscape and uh, it can support I and mean, so it has a conservation role to play in terms of supporting that kind of movement need and all of that kind of requirement and it doesn't have it's not as you know like susceptible to negative economic impacts because elephants don't eat the tea plant so it's not like if they go into a rice paddy field and then they eat the paddy then that's there's a huge economic loss that people have faced but in this case that's that's not there and uh, we found that you know like people were actually quite all right to have elephants using these spaces as long as their safety concerns could be could be met and so one of the things that we tried out uh, was to put these solar powered street lights so the safety concerns were coming from accidental encounters with elephants usually at night or early mornings uh, near where people live so what we did was we put out these uh, we we installed these solar powered street lights and strategically placed them only where people live in the tea estates and with the idea that elephants start associating the the lights with people mm-hmm. and start avoiding those areas but still are able to move through the rest of the tea estate so effectively we're creating dark corridors for elephants to move through and at the same time avoiding uh, people and avoiding a potential situation of conflict with people at a very local scale so then they're able to still meet their requirements and at the same time people are feel safer and and i think ever since we've put those lights up uh, we've received a lot of very positive feedback from people saying that yeah the elephants are now you know moving away from where we are and i think that's i mean we need a lot of creative solutions this is just one i mean this is not a silver bullet or anything like that but it's one step in the direction of thinking about okay how how can we think differently how can we think out of the box how do we how do we think creatively to find ways of achieving coexistence because i definitely think it's possible i love that because a lot of people might like not know but elephants are really quiet when they want to be and mm. so i can imagine if it were completely dark you didn't have street lights and you walked outside and suddenly there's a herd of elephants in front of you yeah. it'd be really scary and you'd probably be scared for your life or for your house mm-hmm. or for your family so yeah. it seems like i mean i'm sure it wasn't easy to do but it seems like such an a simple like we're going to install lights add lights and they're solar powered and kind of deter the elephants and also hopefully give people a better view if they are really quite close <laughs> up and make it a little less scary so yeah and i was just uh, talking about this a little while earlier that once we put the lights people because they liked it so much that they saw that oh yeah the elephants were moving away from where they were they're like oh you should put lights here and you should put lights there and they wanted us to put lights like everywhere in the tea estate and then we had to explain to them that if we put lights everywhere then the elephants are not going to differentiate the lights which are next to your homes versus the lights which are somewhere in in the tea estate like where the tea is growing so if they don't differentiate that then they can still come to where you are and you know this whole solution will would not work mm-hmm. so it's really important uh, that the elephants start associating the lights with you and mm-hmm. avoid the areas where you are and, and and they got it and then they they really thought that this is a a good solution for them yeah mm-hmm. that's amazing yeah. And so I know we've talked a lot about elephants and I'm not familiar exactly with your projects with gibbons but are you is that just a like personal interest for you Divya or are you is there something specific you are working on with gibbons um do they need special help Uh yeah I I started well my first work on gibbons was for my PhD dissertation um I was I've always been interested in primates uh and I wanted to look at how 
animals or primates with a different social system uh, navigates the landscape and this this particular particular prime so gibbons are monogamous which means that they are like us there's one adult male there's one adult female and there's just the young uh, which is very different from other primates which live in much larger groups uh, so i was interested to see how how they move across the landscape uh, and as i started watching gibbons uh, and learning more about gibbons. Gibbons are so cool, by the way. They <laughs> they swing from branch to branch, and that is so neat. They're they're like the trapeze artists of the forest. Yes. Um, and yeah, so uh, once I started learning more about the the conservation status of gibbons, they are a very endangered species. They're facing losses, uh, population losses because of of habitat loss, forest loss, and forest fragmentation. So much so that in the last few decades, uh, experts basically guesstimate that we have lost up to 90% of oh the numbers of, of the animal. Wow. Um, and yeah, so in some of the forests, uh, in some areas, there's just very heavy forest loss. In some areas, there's uh, hunting of gibbons. So clearly, it's important to, to put in efforts to conserve the species. And that's one of the things that we've been wanting to do for a while and we've, we've kind of started that work over the past couple of years. So there are a few over the past few years. So there are a couple of things that we are doing. Um, one is to just increase information on where the gibbons are, what is it that's driving their loss, uh, how can, which can potentially give solutions to, to increase to, for them to recolonize past habitat. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is to try and secure the forest where they are. So they are in these forests, which are community managed. So these are village forests, community owned forests. Uh, and in some places, uh, there is a, a grassroots effort to protect them and to protect their forests. So we are supporting that community based conservation through through various means and basically developing. Um, well, basically, we're using gibbons as a flagship. Okay. And they said they're a really good flagship species because uh, they yeah they they're just very fascinating they have this loud call in the morning mm -hmm. that just announces their presence and and we have that yeah. here at the zoo yeah. oh that's great love, yeah one of the best welcoming things in the morning it's fantastic alarm clock <laughs> <laughs> definitely yeah. i was actually really curious about that because you've talked about you know the human wildlife conflict and that's where we're trying to avoid any conflict between humans and coming across these wild animals but a lot of animals are facing issues with deforestation. And that's something yeah. that I don't know how you as conservationists, I mean, you sort of uh, like, like hinted at how you're helping just kind of secure what's left, but is there a way to stop deforestation? Are you working with the government to try and convince people to stop? Are you working with loggers? Like I truly am always just fascinated by people who are on the grounds, like doing conservation and the community part, I understand. Like I understand how you can educate people or you can help people become inspired or passionate about a really cool animal. But like, what do you do to stop deforestation? I don't know if you two are doing something like that, but are you? And do you have any ideas of like, is that, I, that's a big question. But like, I just don't <laughs> understand how you make such a big difference or stop something that could make such a big difference. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I guess, I mean, so there's, one aspect of it which is to do with the law and that uh, this is illegal to do so logging for example in in india in, in all of these many of these places you're not by law you're not you're not allowed to do it so then if if 
people are logging and then taking the timber and selling it, then that's an illegal act. And so then the government can enforce the law on such people. That's so, so interesting because I assumed that it was happening, happening legally at least some of the time because so much... Um, do you guys have numbers on how much um, of the forest is being cut down on a daily basis or... Uh, well, that's actually, I mean, I guess that's, uh, that's a little, we don't have exact numbers on that. Uh, we, there, uh, once in every so many years, once in two, two, three years, there is a survey that, that comes out where we talk about the state of India's forest. Um, the, but one criticism that has come out of this particular report is that it conflates forests with some plantation areas. Oh, so yeah. you can have uh, agroforests uh, or forests or forest plantations and essentially it would be clubbed under forests. So if you have forest that's that's taken over by or that's cut down and it give rises to gives way to certain types of plantations, then it still gets counted as the same thing. But there was an RTI, uh, sorry, there was a, uh, an RTI is, a, is, is a, a right to information. So it's, a, it's an application that you provide to the government to get information that the government has. Uh, so there was an inquiry sometime back regarding how much forest land is diverted towards non-forest purposes. Mm -hmm. And every day, uh, I think the number is 135 hectares. I can't exactly remember it off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. But every day there is a certain amount of forest land that is diverted for mm -hmm. non-forest And purposes. that is legal, mm -hmm. correct? But yeah, because yes. it's diverted okay. through legal means. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what about pressure from um, cooking fuel? When wood, wood, pressure on forests for the wood for that? Yeah, so so the, the diversion requires, you know, different kind of engagement and, and you know, the policy and government uh, motivation as to, okay, this is what we prioritize over that. And, and that's how you try and secure it. But at a more, like a, at a, like a more local scale, I guess. Uh, so when we are working with, with these community managed forests and working with the communities who, who own and manage these forests, uh, what we've found is that uh, a lot of them, I mean, there's a very strong dependency on uh, firewood uh, for cooking, for warmth during the winters and all of that. So, and I mean, it's 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 an integral part of life. I mean, they they're really dependent on this. So then, the idea would not be to stop it entirely, but to say how do we try and make it more sustainable. Mm. Some of these places are so remote that you can't have uh, like so large parts of India. We have uh, uh, LPG like gas connections for people to cook and things like that. But some of these areas are so remote that they, you wouldn't be able to get. Uh, LPG cylinders to the, to those places, so firewood becomes a really important part of life there. So in these places, what we've been trying to do is to, and we've done some experiments, and it's still early days. But what we're trying to do is essentially say that can we make this firewood usage? Can we make it more efficient? Mm. So in that way, we at least try and reduce the per capita requirement for firewood you know, mm. per whatever, per year or whatever it is. So uh, what we have been doing is that, and we've done some experiments to see how well it works, but we've, uh, we are basically providing these, um, these fuel efficient stoves uh, that let you cook uh, with much less firewood oh. than you would require if you were cooking traditionally on a, like an open 
kind of stove just that in a fire pit. Yeah, yeah. in a fire pit. Yeah. Mm. So that uh, we've just started this work, uh, but so far uh, from our experiments, we do see that it's definitely a lot more efficient. To uh, the people who, I mean, so we took it to one of the villages we work with, and then we asked them to try it out and and took their feedback as well, and they generally were quite they liked the idea as well i mean and they saw that they they were saving firewood mm -hmm. and this the firewood uh, is also it also means a lot of it means effort for them right because they have to go to the forest and, and get the right. firewood mm -hmm. so then uh, that makes it so much easier for them as well if you're using less firewood per meal that you're cooking mm -hmm. uh, so it's been uh, i think welcomed and uh, now a lot of people are saying that yeah this is something that they would like to sign up for as well so we are rolling it out uh, at a larger scale now and we'll see how it goes but hopefully if if this is something that that kind of does take off then it should reduce uh, the dependency on firewood uh, to a reasonable extent and that hopefully will then make things sustainable in terms of at least this community forest that uh, that we work with so i think um, i just uh, varun was going to say earlier also that in so in some parts of of these areas the land is actually owned and managed by the communities themselves so uh, they can collectively take decisions on what land use to have on the land and one of those mm -hmm. land land covers i guess one of those land uses is forest so they can take a decision to keep some part of their land as as forest it's like the private forest here in the us um so part of working with the communities is increasing awareness of course but also figuring out ways by which uh, there can be some incentive to set aside some land as forest tourism for instance could instance could be one incentive uh, things like you know they source firewood etc from the forest these forests are also uh, watershed areas so all of that is also incentives to conserve the forest so i think the other part of the how do you how do you stop deforestation is also to figure out these very direct links between forests and uh, either to figure out or to forge direct links between mm -hmm. the forests and and people's well-being as well as livelihoods. Wow. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because like seeing the kind of connections you're able to make from your grassroots efforts to um, kind of promote the the buy-in from the public, right? And the fact that that's able to actually influence policy, that's not something that I think we see over here in the United States quite as much. That's really incredible and amazing that you guys are able to make those connections. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I would like to know a little bit more. Um, so your foundation is called Conservation Initiatives. Yeah. How many people are on your team? How do you decide what to do each day? Like, where do you go? Like, I just, <laughs> it's truly, I just don't know how you start. I think it's amazing. But is it just the two of you? Do you have a lot of people? How are you getting funding? And <laughs> uh, We have about uh, 28 people on wow, our team. Okay. This involves, like, everybody um, we have a few projects that are running and basically those those projects and we try to keep our, our company sort of uh, sorry our organization uh, not very hierarchical so everybody sort of knows everybody uh, everybody knows what like there are different teams and the teams know what each other what each person is doing and we try to keep uh, the knowledge flow both like from both top down as well as bottom up so there's a lot of flexibility and decision making that people on the ground can take as well. Uh, so once we decide on our, uh, we have projects and those those projects essentially have activities and that determines 
uh, what we do on a day-to-day okay. basis. Well, yeah, I'd be like, do I wake up today and go to this neighborhood and <laughs> these people? Do I, you know, like... Yeah, yeah there are also, I think, uh, unique opportunities that come up. Sometimes there are, uh, you know, there can be... Well, now I can't think of an example, but there could... Su- suddenly there's an elephant in a TSA somewhere and then we can go and, you know, we can we keep it a little flexible that way so that if we want to go and observe the elephant in the TSA, we what can... What about the, the bridge over the railway line? Oh, yes, yes, that is a good one. Uh, yeah, so um, sometime back we got a call from uh, the department, an, an official from the forest department in a nearby forest. This is a very interesting forest. It's it's like a small forest of just 20 square kilometers, which is about 10 miles, I would like yeah. to say. Yeah, good job. <laughs> 10 square miles, maybe. Um, and there is a railway line that cuts directly across the forest. So it splits it into two, one larger part, one smaller part, which makes it very difficult for species like gibbons to cross over from mm-hmm. one side to another. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wanted to to have a bridge, a canopy bridge that, that cuts across from and links one forest to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted our help with it. So obviously, I mean, this is a fantastic thing to do. So then obviously we were very keen. Uh, we looked up other um, such efforts where people have used rope bridges, um, or other structures to link uh, and you know a canopy gap um, and found that something had been done a rope bridge of sorts had been uh, using mountaineering grade rope had been constructed for for the Hainan gibbon uh, so we used that same sort of formula uh, showed it to the to the department official and he he liked the idea as well so we showed it to some engineers uh, and consulted with people who are in, interested in mountaineering and got a small concept note out of it, did a field visit as well with him. So that that was sort of a unique opportunity where we could potentially help. Uh, and yeah, when those sort of opportunities come up, then we grab it with both hands. <laughs> I love it. And yeah, just for anyone listening that isn't familiar, obviously a railway going through a forest is difficult for animals to cross just because there's yes. trains or, you know, there's something that could be dangerous for them to cross. But Gibbons are primarily arboreal, so they're going to brachiate or swing, like you mentioned, through the trees, and coming down to the ground is very dangerous and uncomfortable for them, right? So not only would they have to cross the railroads, but they would have to come down. Yes, that isn't natural for them, so having a bridge is really important for them. Yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention, yeah, sorry. Uh, Yeah, so the railway line, it's not only just the space of the railway line, but the railways requires that there's some space on either side of it to be completely clear of um, any trees and any foliage. So it's a pretty, pretty big gap. Mm. Yeah. So how many, like, did you end up making a bridge? And <laughs> it's still, it's in the works okay. as in we, we weren't doing it. The, the department as well as the railways. Uh, so the forest department, and the railways department were essentially going to do it. They wanted inputs from, uh, scientists. So we provided inputs. There was another uh, scientific group that provided inputs as well, pretty much along the same lines that, that we did. And, uh, the proposal is now there with the government to hopefully, yeah, hopefully it'll be done. Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah. important. Yeah, and it's a really important, uh, you know, it's a little patch of forest, but it's really important for primates. It's got like uh, seven species, I think, of, of primates all there. So it's like a, it's almost like a, a lab for students who want to study primate behavior wow. and foraging ecology i mean eating what they eat and all of those kind of things it's it's really an ideal place to go and study so yeah i'm glad that we're able to help with you know the yeah. gibbons and other primates being able to cross between 
one patch, one yeah, side right. to the other side. Yeah, fingers crossed it'll yeah. soon be actually installed. Yes, and yeah, it's so important also because if they aren't able to cross, then there's not as much breeding that can happen in genetic exactly. diversity and exactly. it can really cause a bottleneck with different yeah. species. So yes. that's an issue you hear about with palm oil and things like yes. that too, causing these mm -hmm. um, gaps in forests. But mm -hmm. um, before we kind of start to wrap up, we appreciate all of your time. Lily, what is your thought? What is the zoo hoping to do? And how are, like, why are we involved? Yeah, well, we're very inspired by the amazing work that they do at Conservation Initiatives. And we want to help tell their story and get to know them and make sure we are representing that story of the hard work happening for conserving elephants and gibbons on the ground in their wild landscapes here at our zoo in our new habitat that we're building an elephant track. So we can only do that when we get to know the people who really do that work. And so we'll be asking them for advice in our stories here and asking them how can we help tell your stories? Because we want to be able to help uh, more people learn about conservation initiatives. Also, I'm a nerd, but I want to work with them. <laughs> Sign me up. Sign me up. <laughs> and we want to share resources and support and have more and more of our zoo team support their team on the ground. And so I love nerding out about behavior change and how to get people to change their behavior to more positive behaviors that support coexisting with wildlife. And they have some interesting challenges with the elephant behavior and communities there. Mm -hmm. So we're going to work together and hopefully get some funding to test out some interesting solutions and problems to solve the problems that uh, elephants and people getting into conflict. Yes. Face. Yeah, we're really excited about it. Yeah. Can't wait to start. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I think we just move forward and we keep hoping somebody will find us. <laughs> it's too good not to do it. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask one more question. Actually, I have two questions, but this is the main one. Um, what can I do? You guys are doing a ton to help the world be a better place, help animals, help people and their safety and everything. So if you had one thing of advice, what would you say? Uh, so, well, one thing that I'd say is that there is a, there are a lot of grassroots on-ground conservation movements happening across the world. So uh, I would say pick your favorite species or pick your favorite area or just look around your, your neighborhood. There's likely uh, an organization, a small-scale organization doing work on the ground, conserving an animal or an ecosystem. And some something will click for you. You'll find something interesting and fascinating. Reach out to the organization, find out a little bit more about it, see if you can get involved, maybe volunteer with them, maybe donate to them, uh, maybe just keep in touch and just see what they're doing. Uh, but I think it's really important for people across the world to connect and learn about uh, sort of conservation efforts that are happening at small scales. But uh, I, I guess it takes a lot of drops to make the ocean. <laughs> a lot of yeah. these efforts hopefully are going to contribute to us having a nice greener world. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. And so that kind of actually ties in perfectly to my other like small last question. So... Um, you're saying get to know these other organizations, find out what's going on around you. So do you guys have social media? Is there a way people can learn more about you? Do you have anything you'd like to share as far as a website or Instagram or Facebook or anything like that? Thanks. Thanks for asking. We have a website. Yes, it's conservationinitiatives.org. Um, on the website are links to our social media page. We, I guess, are more active on Instagram. than. Yeah, but we have both Instagram and Twitter as well. handles. Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, I think they both have the same name. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's yeah, it's just conservation initiatives on dot initiatives on on Instagram, but that's on our web page too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So if people would like to know more about our work, then then please feel free to go to the website, and our email address is there too. And you can just as well as a contact form, you can just drop us a note, and we'd be really happy to talk to more people about about our work we love talking about our animals and our landscapes so yeah okay i lied i have one more question (laughs) you mentioned like looking into all of this and possibly volunteering do you guys need or take volunteers are you at that point in your foundation or not yet you're laughing like maybe not yet (laughs) and i'm not saying for me don't get me wrong i would love to but for anyone interested is that something they like is Sorry, Jenna's. She'll be there tomorrow. Yes, I, <laughs> I just invited myself. But uh, so some some things that we do, we can take in volunteers. Uh, some things that we do, we can potentially only take volunteers from India. Uh, and some things that we do, we do only with our trained teams. Sure. So it's sort of like a division of mm-hmm. activities that w- that way. No worries. No, I didn't yeah. mean to put pressure. On you. <laughs> I was just curious. Thought I'd put it out there in case you needed volunteers. <laughs> you never know. No, but there's oh, some yeah. things which, the, which for which yeah. we could, like the Vya said, that we could have international volunteers. Yeah. And we, yeah, we'd be happy to have explore those possibilities. It's just that certain other things, uh, you know, would require the volunteer to also be an Indian citizen as per the laws of the country. We might have listeners in India. I know we have some oh, all right. over the world, so maybe they're oh, yeah. listening to <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then reach out to us. <laughs> in any case, we, like, we love to talk to people who are, you know, also inspired to conserve, fellow conservationists. So, yeah, fellow enthusiasts. So, exactly. please reach out. Conservation is complicated. <laughs> oh we need a yes. lot of people contributing wherever they can and getting creative, which means we need people with all sorts of skill sets. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited for us to be working together. And thanks so much, Jenna and Mark, for this oh. opportunity to tell we're some good stories. That we, uh, we're thankful that we were able to yes, <laughs> have yeah. you guys as guests. So <laughs> thanks. So thank much. you. It was so much fun. And we hope you, you have a great visit. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Great. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We will talk to you later. Yeah. Until next time, guys. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye.